Here we go. Episode 5, Black Guys in a Box. And you're here with me, Dan Chewa. Watch out, you've got Dom here as well. And all the way up in the north, you've got myself, Angelo. Spanning the nation, coming from every angle. Um, guys, guys, nicely intro there. Uh, Dom, have you been? I've been good, man. I've been good. I'm in one of those situations now that where I'm also very glad that the summer's about to end because it's been one of those where I'm blowing. I'm really showing signs of fatigue now. I've had weddings and parties and holidays and I can't hack it anymore, lads. I cannot hack it anymore. Um, it's been living lavish. I won't quite say lavish. I've just been living a bit too much. Lavish. Uh, for some people anyway. But yeah, just about that really. I've got Ibiza coming up in a couple of weeks. I'm preparing myself for that. <laughs> <laughs> I really can't. I can't be bothered with it right now, but I know it'll be, it'll be live as per. Um, so I've got that coming up. But aside from that, man. I'm looking forward to those cold autumnal evenings at this point. How about you boys? Well, I mean, for me, uh, I quite like autumn. You know, it's being a man of the north. Seasons change. Everyone chills out a bit. Kids go back to school. That's That's been a drag. I'm not usually rounding them out much yeah. during the summer, but everywhere you go, children, children, all over public transport. Sick of him. I mean, they've got to go somewhere, but just not at the same time as me, hopefully. Mm. So, yeah, no, it's, uh, looking forward to the autumn. Nice, nice sort of chill time and just sort of knuckle down with work and things. Speaking of uh, knuckling down with work, another man with a big job on, your man in number 10, Bojo. <laughs> Boris Johnson, <laughs> Prime Minister without a mandate. Prime Minister. Unelected. How long are we going to go on with the patois? <laughs> and now it's not going to be held to account by anyone in Parliament because prorogued. Prior to that, Boris has been a busy boy anyway. Um, I knew we'd have to talk about him at some point. We could have talked, spoken about him more in the last pod, but I thought it's just going to come up, and lo and behold, it has. So, I mean, the first sort of one of the first things he did was when. Uh, he spoke about being tough on crime, which is it's it's a classic uh, conservative policy or policy area, shall we say, because there's no, there's no real policies. It's just the sound bites. And he's going to flood the streets uh, with with officers and increase sentences. Um, what do you think about that, Angelo? I think it's dangerous. Um, but more than that, I think it doesn't take into account what the police are saying. So you had on the 4th of July, um, the chief inspector of the constabulary saying, um, we don't just need numbers, we need essentially reform. Um, so Thomas Windsor is the guy's name. He said that keeping the public safe was not just about police numbers and said that Boris Johnson's uh, plans were not the most efficient and effective way of spending 1.1 billion pounds on policing. For me, it's just the same dog whistle. When we hear uh, tough on crime, when we hear uh, about kind of getting tough on the causes of crime, I remember that being one, uh, it normally means in specific areas. You know, we've joked before about how it seems that... The joke we always make is that if, if uh, Glastonbury was policed like Notting Hill, there'd be a civil war. Um and it's this idea that you can play this dog whistle because it plays well. 
Um, and I also think that with what Boris is doing is the same thing that Theresa May did before, which is making a political calculation that you can demonise mm. people of colour and it's an electoral winner because in the constituencies that they feel they need to win to remain elected, they don't necessarily care about the people that he's demonising. What do you guys reckon? So you said something that really struck a chord then because you said people will talk and, and speak to these rhetorics whilst it's a political winner and it's proven to be a political winner, isn't it, at the moment? Um, we've had this kind of rhetoric for the last, what, three, four, five years now when mm. you're talking around Trump, you're talking around Brexit. Um, and I think one thing that is really quite telling with me when it comes to Boris is he seems to be one of the first that I've seen in the UK, at least anyway, in my lifetime, um, that's so high profile to be very explicit with his speak around racism um, and around those kind of themes. So usually it was it was something that was perceived. It was something that you could see was implied, but it wasn't really explicit. But I just think back to just before he was elected as Conservative leader, <clears throat> he was asked a question by a journalist regarding his comments around um, African children with the picking the, the pickings with watermelon smiles and a few other abhorrent things he said in the past, which are quite blatantly racist. And paraphrasing here, but he, he effectively said that people nowadays want politicians that are being honest. They don't want to hear the same thing that they've heard hundreds and thousands of times before. So you're kind of saying there that it's okay to be racist as long as it's really how you feel. Um, so I think I've laughed and joked about this in the past and said that I prefer my racism like it is in the States because it's much more overt than it is over here. It seems like we're pretty much in that day where we can say what we want now and there's not going to be too many repercussions because you're being honest about it. So, I mean, I could speak all day about how I really feel about him, but at the moment, this is what we've got. This is where we're at. He's going to serve up ample opportunity, Dom, for exactly. you to go into that. Exactly. Boris hate bag you've got. It's a big old bag. But I think there's something else that I wanted to add to that, which is there's a, and I've been thinking about this, there's a trauma element to it there's a trauma aspect and what I mean by that is I remember being a child and you would hear a news story about a violent crime that had been committed and when you saw that it wasn't a black person you'd almost celebrate because and I remember this, this being something that happened like the whole family we would kind of celebrate and then we'd kind of laugh and I think that what that really spoke to was that an understanding that we would carry the can for other people that were the same color as us doing committing crimes yep um and and so i think that when he does this thing of uh getting tough on crime when the i know we're going to go on to talk about the uh chicken boxes um there is a trauma aspect because to live in this society as a person of color specifically somebody that is labeled as black is to understand that you are on the hook for all crimes that people that other people think look like you yep. do. And I think that that while he, he's being very reckless with his language, and I kind of am only aware of this because I've sat down and thought about it, but I wonder what is the impact of that, of the impact of knowing that you are considered suspicious, that you are considered a threat, and you've got a person in the highest office in the country essentially co-signing that. Well, I mean, this is a difficulty because... 
we I feel like we were only just coming back round from the damage done the last time stop and search was enacted yep. and it sort of it became to be known that it was pretty universally after all these studies and evidence that it it's targeted a certain demographic and it didn't necessarily work it was just it was it just spread everywhere and we're coming back around from that that it did irreparable damage between uh certain communities particularly black communities and police and it it sort of frayed that relationship and they're sort of still struggling to rebuild that at the minute so I feel like to now go back down that road is just uh it's misguided at best. But it's I mean it's it's what they I don't know if people watch a wire, they call it they have dope on the table where they or the the different police forces just want something to show for for the cameras. It's show policing, oh we stopped and searched these people, it's it's from that same uh, sort of area of policing where you get perp walks let's show that we're doing something and that's this it's rather than actually the real work in tackling sort of the root of crime and is investing in programs in in uh deprived areas and and going to schools and real sort of grunt work working with like community centers that's it's it's that's not sexy it's expensive and it's it takes a real sort of will political will to do that and it's just it's it's hard so you know it's easier just to say oh we're gonna get tough on crime i I think on that though dan as well while so many of the issues and so many of the victims surround young black people i think it's always going to be something that you can talk about say doing things but kind of be pretty empty with your words but this isn't going to stop anytime soon this is going to keep getting worse because the problems that are really involved around why we're seeing so much so much crime, so much knife crime, so much violent crime at the moment. They're not just isolated to black communities, they're isolated with the poor. And mm. black people and poor, I mean, there are a hell of a lot of poor black people, but that ain't it. And as soon as that keeps spreading, because we're seeing it in the north of England, we're seeing it in places where there is a pretty small black community, once that starts to spread like wildfire and we're seeing that there's a hell of a lot more white victims, I'm thinking that that's when we're going to see some more change, personally. I think the question needs to be asked also, why is it in poor communities that that's happening? And I think the the thing that you just said, Dom, can absolutely be related to what Dan just said. Because what I don't want any of our listeners to hear is that what we're saying is, Poor people are more naturally violent. That's obviously a, mm-hmm. a, um, a, a canard that is normally used to beat us over the head with. No, the reason it's happening in poorer communities is because they are being stripped of services. And that exactly. is yep. the issue. It's when you kind of strip away libraries, when you strip away after school services, when you strip away community centres you strip away all of these places, you strip away the bus routes. This is when you create the conditions in which violence has to happen. And I, and I do mean has to happen because it is about survival. Um, and it's also, you'll find often, and you can look at, uh, if you, you can look at a map and go, these are areas of uh, where there is are people that are deprived and oftentimes you'll find that they've got quite poor schooling as well that Ofsted doesn't rate these schools highly 
And so all of these ingredients are what is happening. And the the, the, the honest truth is that um, dealing with those issues isn't some isn't sexy. It's probably not a campaign winner. No. So what you do is actually we don't have the money to sort that out, and also we don't have the will to sort that out. It's, capitalism requires have-nots. It's not, it's not this a is, This is one of the big things. Capitalism requires have-nots, and so the price for people, you know, having these two hundred foot yachts and making a killing in the stock market is yeah, we'll cut these services, and so I think it's really important to recognise the danger isn't just oh, black people are going to once again be targeted. It's actually about, we are the canaries down the coal mine. And what happens to us will happen to other people that look, and I'm putting that in inverted commas, like Boris Johnson, who will soon be wondering, why are things terrible for me as well? And actually, there's a lot of people, white working class, who recognise that things are terrible for them now. Well, yeah, and the fascinating thing with what you just said there is you need poor people given that a lot of the poor people are now about to be kicked out of the country because they're not British enough. Um, they're going to need poor people more than ever in the sort of coming months post-Brexit. And, uh, you know, sort of to tie this back round to um, whether there's any sincerity in a desire to cut police in. Everyone wants less crime. But if you look at Boris's record... He says things which are politically expedient. He ran on an anti-crime ticket when he's going to be the mayor of London. And then after his first budget, so not after he started, because obviously it takes time to actually train people and the budget to be enacted. After his first budget to his last budget, they, they, they cut the number of officers by one and a half thousand and he removed desk officers. So, uh, you know, you've only got to look at what happened last time. He was given any kind of control over a budget or a policing system. I think he's also a lot like Donald Trump in the fact that people haven't really gone in depth on the things that he said. So when I was writing my dissertation, one of the things that I've included in my dissertation are excerpts from the article where he talked about the watermelon smiles. And I think it's really important that people understand the kind of man and the kind of things that he was writing, because he's writing this sincerely. And I'm only going to give you uh, the opening sentence and the opening sentence is you would need a heart of stone not to have been moved by the little aids ridden choristers and it's just one of those things where that just feels so i remember reading it and going oh this must be a a satire but you read it through the whole way and it's got this quote-unquote colonial feel this idea of we are the white saviors and look at these poor AIDS-ridden people, uh, and as we sat in our armchairs, as though at some durbar, the choir formed in a semicircle before us, dozens of tiny children in lacy embroidered dresses, their parents were almost all dead, and on some of the children you could see the twin tendons already standing out of the back of the neck. And it's just, if you, if you, and I'm reading you the nice bits, you go through it and you go, hold it, what kind of worldview does he have? And it maps really nicely onto the Stacey Dooley stuff for me, not that we're going to talk about that, but... This white saviour narrative. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's. I, I think. Like, I'm. I'm not sure. I'm not sure it matters. I, th- I honestly, I th- when I say I'm not sure it matters, I. I don't think people care. You say, but like with Trump, they want scrutiny. They, they don't want scrutiny. They know exactly who he is. Who, who, like, it's no one is gonna 
be like who was thinking like, oh i was thinking of voting for him but now now i'm actually going to this is beyond the pale because then you've got to mentally you've got to accept that you're willing to put up with all the other stuff mm-hmm. and no one wants to do that because you either you either put it, put off him at the first place or like you or you've sat and been silent whilst and sort of just uh said no that's okay that's okay that's okay that's okay oh this is beyond the pale now because then you've got forced you sort of for me i feel like you're forced to confront what you as a person were willing to put up with because you thought it might benefit yourself well i think when the parallels with trump are drawn a lot of the time in the states they say and if you look at a lot of the people that are actually associated with him whether it's his previous staff whether it's people that have worked with or for him in the past people are very much with trump until he goes after them and i think it's going to be the same over here people will be very much with boris once he whilst he's looking after their own whilst the other people that are suffering as soon as things start to change and they start to feel the effects of his premiership then that's when things will start to change but right now and i understand it i mean if you are a certain person that's living in an environment where what he's saying about black people or muslims doesn't affect you you don't know many muslims you might already be quite anti-islam then why are you going to change your mind it's when you start seeing effects within your local community within your local neighborhood that you're going to start to look at him in a different light that's just the way that humans work i i also feel he's quite he's he's very lucky because in terms of of our political system it's given that it's a head-to-head he's very lucky that he's not up against anyone uh, well yeah or or a normal sort of he's he's up against jeremy corbyn who is that is that sort of like drastically different from him it's never going to be a case of oh this is a decent person this is a bad person it's going to be this is boris who's is pro-business and this is jeremy who's 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 a socialist let's let's face facts (laughs) so it's not gonna it doesn't it's not even gonna it's not even gonna matter anything he said about people it's gonna be it's gonna be framed the, the, the battle's going to be fought on a on a ground which favors him it's, 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 it's you know it's it's unfortunate but i just feel like we've we've learned enough about politics in the last five years alone to start to know how this how this is going to go and the rules of engagement as well they're being written as they're being played out i mean if you what was that documentary that was on netflix recently the one about um, cambridge analytica so there was uh, something hack, hack attack hacked some something to the great the, hack. the great hack that's it and there was a line in there that stood with me, which was, nowadays, it's pretty much impossible to have a truly democratic election because of the way that people are harnessing social media, the way that people aren't really debating anymore. All these different things combined to mean that we don't know what the rules are anymore. We make them up as we go along, and then we just deal with the consequences afterwards. And that's a real sign, again, on top of the proroguing this week, of a really broken democracy. So, I mean, we're getting to a stage now where, and I don't know where to start, I don't know what the solution is, but there needs to be something different. There needs to be a change to the way that we engage with politics, to the way that people are represented, but who knows what that's going to look like in 5, 10, 15 years. Um, I noticed that you guys were, it sounded like from all the way up here that there was a kind of like is that, is an that, anti- Is that on your high horse? No, is no, no, all just... The way, all the way up there on your... yeah fine um uh, but there seemed to be like this kind of anti-corbyn sentiment um and i was just interested if a that was the case and b if you would kind of give us a 
bit more on that because uh, certainly where I live, there's a very positive. Um, he's 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 appreciated where I live, and I think that there is a sense that the the view of lots of people is that he has been maligned, and the idea that he kind of he he is in opposition. There is only so much that he can do, but you know people like to go with easy narratives that he's seen off. Now two Tory leaders, or is it three Tory leaders? Was he in when Cameron was there? Uh, yeah. Um, so he's seen off two leaders, um, and so actually he's being effective, but he's because he is not, you know, a quote-unquote media darling. That he is being attacked for things that he can't change. I'm just wondering if you wanted to oh, uh, unpack a little bit of what I heard as a reluctance well, or a dislike this of, this of, is of a draw Jeremy out. Corbyn. This is a draw out. I mean, from my perspective, like. I'm who I vote for is between me and the ballot box oh, and the politician here. But what Give I the, but what I will say is like it, this is I I read an article about by uh, a writer called Taylor Parks who is is an excellent writer. I used to write for Melody Maker back in the day, and also when when Saturday comes, the uh, iconic football fanzine once wrote a scathing critique of. Uh, a Tim Lovejoy football book. It's probably the worst takedown you've ever seen. It's fantastic. Look it up if you can. But anyway, he'd written this article and the, the just the thrust of this article was about how he'd been a Labour voter and very left-wing and not even really felt like he'd been served by the, the sort of Blair government. So he was, he was sort of happy to see a return to sort of the true Labour values. But then when he actually, he followed sort of Corbyn's campaign trail around and his his sentiment was it sort of agreed with the thrust of many of the sort of policies he had and the direction he was taking it in but it was just like does it have to be him and that's that's the way i feel it i, I, I like the policy direction's good but i feel like there couldn't be a more like he 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 has a he's got so much so much baggage it just makes it very difficult for for the party to sort of to win over the support it needs for it to go in the direction it needs to go and I feel like he's he's very stubborn and you're seeing some of his, his in his appointees you think oh why why <laughs> this person like what you're nearly there you're nearly in the place where this party needs to go so for me I just I struggle with some of the uh with some of the, the, the stubbornness and the contradictions and the way he it's it's the way certain parts of the party run so it's i mean it's for me it's my, if, my I, I, yeah that's where i'm coming from i think my issue on that is slightly different so ideologically i agree with a lot of what i've heard from corbyn i'm pretty aligned with a hell of a lot of what i've heard from him my issue is over the last three years the country has more than any other time in my lifetime at least needed some real strong opposition some strong leadership from the opposition. And I don't think we at one stage got that. Um, and there's been numerous occasions when we're talking about debates within the within the Commons around blocking no deal and bringing other suggestions to the table where it's it seemed like he's at the last minute thought, okay, the consensus is I should do this after months and months and months of saying otherwise. And it's like, we need someone that's going to be proactive. We need someone that's going to be strong. And I've just not seen that with him. Um, so I think that's where my real issue is with him. And also, in a nutshell, this for me, this is this is his, his Brexit 
sort of leadership in a nutshell. Today, the you saw the Labour PR team was they tweeted out their big policy was that they'd they were going to classify jellyfish, uh, squid, and lobsters as animals, so they'd be covered by this new law by this law, which meant you couldn't boil them alive. And that's what they tweeted out. And everyone's like, they're literally proroguing Parliament. <laughs> they're closing down democracy. And you're tweeting about lobster and squid. And like again, it's a good idea. It's like I get it, I understand it. But why now? What is wrong with you? L- focus on the issue at hand. But anyway, that's <laughs> is it an accident or is it on purpose? Because all I think of now is Trump telling people to go back where they came from, and then a couple of days later trying to get Sweden to release ASAP Rocky. It's just always... Dead cat. (laughs) It's always take your eyes away from the important issues. Mm. Important issues like chicken boxes. Who doesn't love chicken? (laughs) Seamless transition. (laughs) You're good at this, you know. You're good at it. (laughs) That podcast masterclass has smashed it for you. There you go. Um, Podcast masterclass, otherwise known as the Lab Studios, where we are. Thankfully, being put up here by Drew Byron, old tight guys, great people. Um, yeah, so the chicken box is dumb. <sighs> Don't get me started. <laughs> chicken boxes. The first thing that I think of when I hear about knife crime is the word that is being completely avoided whenever you hear about any of these murders and stabbings in the press, and it's the D word. It's drugs. And one of the main issues that I have, and I think it's clear for all to see, I mean, if you live in London, if you live elsewhere in the country where there's a little bit of money, cocaine is at a real epidemic. I mean, it's it's quite it's quite amazing to see the consumption of cocaine. It's in the water. It yeah. is, it's it is. It's on all your notes, it's in the water, it's rife. And this really does piggyback onto what we were talking about with Boris and tackling crime. I think until we start to look at the root causes of crime in general, of knife crime, why these things are happening. Nothing's going to change. And the cocaine issue is massive. And it's not just that. I mean, that's the one that's really prevalent down here in London. But I mean, up north, I think it's a lot of heroin. There's a lot of crack as well that's been... um, that's, That's all over the streets in the likes of Huddersfield, Bradford. I can only really speak to the parts of the north that I'm familiar with. Um, but when you've got these young kids that are pushing drugs on the streets, fighting over territory, and they're effectively just puppets for people much higher up that are making all the money, that's when you start to see the bloodshed. And nothing changes because the people that are consuming the drugs, the people that are benefiting from all the bloodshed, are the people that are effectively writing these laws or not writing laws and and not enacting change within the streets and within the neighborhoods that this is happening. Um, So for me, it's it's a no-brainer. You start to tackle that and then you see less stabbings. You see, I mean, in the the short term, you probably see more because when there's less demand, people are challenging each other more for the actual sale. But once you get past that, people have to start to focus their attention and their energy in other areas. And if you couple that with more investment in community, more after-school workshops and classes and sports activities for children to be doing, then there's much less of a draw for this. And the easy stuff to do is chicken boxes. Let's write some messages on a chicken box. Let's go after people that are talking about stabbing up people and their music. 
it doesn't mean anything. I mean, I listen to half the music that these kids are listening to. Not once have I felt compelled to go out and stab someone. It's nonsense. Yeah, so just sort of to chase that back, um, it was announced as a new government policy uh, as well. Uh, it was the first policy. plank of their, well, first plank of their anti-knife crime policy was that they were commissioning a special range of anti-knife crime chicken boxes in which each <laughs> chicken box um, would feature a story about, you know, someone getting killed, basically encouraging children not to do it. Which I mean, it's 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 just it's as ridiculous as it seems. Um, it's a sketch, isn't it? One hundred percent, one hundred percent. And you, you, it's there are there are many layers to it. Like fundamentally, for me, it, it's not going to work because it's bollocks. These, yeah, <laughs> these kids are carrying weapons because they fear for their own lives. That's fu- that's fundamentally it. It's not, you know, it's it's they fear for their own lives. So I, at first I thought it's because they don't value life, but on the contrary, it's because mm-hmm. they value their own life. And unfortunately, statistics shows that if you carry a knife yourself, you're more likely to end up exactly dead. So that's why it's that's why you need to like like you said just then you need to look at everything else. It's sort of you need to look at the framework around these kids. What's their home life like? At? what is the sort of after school situation and sort of work from there but it's it's a lot easier just to push out uh, a range of chicken boxes on twitter um i think there's a i think there's a range of issues um what i'll do is i'll we'll link to uh what i'm about to talk about um when we uh upload this but there was a question time that laura pidcock was on and there were two uh, black women in the audience who talked about what the issue was in London and they talked about how this postcode war had been going on since 1999 and nothing had been done about it and they really laid out the issues and they kind of made it clear that there is a very specific war that is going on over postcodes um over 20 years ago when this postcode war started this has been going on from 98 99 and people were sat round tables talking about it then it's now spiraled out of control and you're still sitting down talking what is it gonna take for the mps to sit down and say something's got to be done. Is it going to be your son or your daughter that's going to be killed for you to deal with it? We are fed up of seeing our parents crying. We're fed up of it. We're not supposed to be as adults. We are not supposed to be burying our children. Our children are supposed to be burying us. And I've got 14 grandchildren and I am so scared. So scared. Not only London, this is happening in Manchester, it's happening in Birmingham, it's happening up and down the UK. The only place who has really taken up a stance to say that they are going to do something about it is Scotland. And, you know, you can see that in music videos. I remember, Dom, you showing me the uh, drill video where it was quite explicit what they were talking about. That's one issue. And an understanding that is 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 its own issue i think there is another issue which is 
the idea of just actually this is going to be our response for me highlights the importance of having a more diverse range of voices in the rooms where decisions are made because I can't believe that if there was a people who had a diversity of experience in that room that the idea of putting messages on a chicken box wouldn't have been highlighted as being a little bit useless and, and all, almost parodic because um, you know it, you, you can imagine the room right Quentin uh, we've got to do something about these uh, young let's let's call them what they are coloureds um, just stabbing each other you know it's it's quite awful yes yes you're quite right Jonty um, we've only got five minutes before we head to the strip club uh, put some no, message on the cocaine. everybody agree yep right off we and, and that's what it sounds like that's exactly what it kind of feels like but so that's another issue so the the people making the decisions all they clearly have too much of a uniformity of experience and i think going back to what we were saying about the twenty thousand police officers there's there's lack in these areas um when you cut libraries cut youth clubs make low-paid work that forces people to have more than one job you know, we can talk about the employment figures, but when people are having to work two or three jobs and they're still going to food banks, this is all what plays into this. You've got an education system that widens inequality through university. This is what helps create these conditions. Um, why are people willing to kill over a postcode? Because that's all they have. That, and, and, and the, you know, there's a, I might link to this one as well. There's a great um, poem from... Deaf Comedy Jam from ten about ten years ago. It's American, but the the um, not Deaf Comedy Jam, Deaf, Deaf Poetry Jam, and the guys asking the question, red or blue? Why are you willing to die over red or blue? And he talks about you don't own the streets that you're you're dying. I would stand amidst the fists on a battlefield among an army of red and an army of blue, and I stand tall and true as I ask you, what are you fighting for? This four-foot-by-four-foot four concrete block you're arguing for and bartering for is merely a prison without bars that still manages to arrest you by confining your mind and you allow this corner to define you and now you're redefining yourself by calling yourself a street corner entrepreneur. And I ask you, what are you fighting for? You see, now you're standing on corners I used to call my own, corners I once considered a safe zone, and now I'm too afraid to let my mother walk to the store alone because these streets, they're covered with cowardly fake gangsters and I'm angered at the nonsense. That rag on your head is somehow keeping knowledge from seeping into your brain. Don't you see that you're dying for nothing rather than living for something? You're self-destructing and just fucking your own self over. And I ask you, what are you fighting for? You're waging wars over something that never was and never will be yours because owning the streets is just a fictitious concept that gets misused by hip-hop dudes trying to pass themselves off as reincarnated gangsters. So, contrary to popular belief, no matter how deep your gang is or how much money you'll think you'll make from crack rocks, the only concrete blocks you'll ever own are the ones that come with steel bars or the ones we call tombstones. So I guess the only... So I guess the only decision left for you to choose is whether the fabric in your casket should be red or blue. And I asked you, what you that. are you dying um, for? I don't know if you guys watch um, Patriot Act by um, Hassan Minhaj. And he talked in his last episode about how um, in America, um, the single biggest driver of social change is public transport. Well, I live in a nice part of the city that I live in. And the, the, the bus 
service is brilliant. There's four or five different buses that come through my street. But I go to watch, so I live, I'm living in Hull, and I went to watch the um, the rugby derby, the rugby league derby. And I remember getting mm-hmm. the bus back, and it was it was like going back 150 years. And you go, but this is meant to be the same city. Um, and I think that's the same in London. Ask yourself yeah. why places like Lewisham and Streatham have such relatively poor transport systems. But if you live in South Kensington, it's brilliant. Uh, the point is, putting some messages on chicken boxes is all about giving the impression that you're doing something, not actually doing something. It's that thing when a teacher comes into a, a room that the kids have been in, and it's about looking busy rather than doing anything. Oh, absolutely. And, and the first point that you made there, and I know that you only mean it to be a fairly small point around the lyrics and the videos and the music that I'm listening to, it, it really doesn't sit well with me at all. So I think back to... I think it was the um, El Paso shooting in the States last month um, where Donald Trump, instead of saying that the person was a white supremacist, instead of saying that the person was a terrorist, started talking about, um, I think it was video games and saying that we're seeing all this mm. violence in video games and it drives people to doing this kind of stuff. But it's it's nonsense. For me, the, the argument around listening to lyrics and music, the, watching the music videos that glorify these things, or in some cases don't even glorify it. They just speak about the existence that they have. That doesn't affect someone unless they're already in that situation. I mean, like I said, we all listened to the same stuff growing up. I was hearing about 50 Cent getting shot up. I was hearing about NWA saying all kinds of stuff when I was younger. It didn't drive me to doing anything like that. The truth is that a lot of these kids that are listening to this music feel they live in that environment they are living that life anyway so it's not a cause of the music they're already living it oh definitely i i agree with that dom i think actually what the music does is provide a little bit of support to say actually you're not the only person going through this and that's why a lot of these artists have such loyal fan bases is because they know about trapping they know about all of the um difficult issues that people are going through And, and they're rapping about it do you know what I mean? So it's not, I completely agree. It's not to say, oh, it's it's because some garage artist or some grime artist or some drill artist is saying this stuff is why young people are going around doing this. Actually, no, they're hearing that and feeling a support that, let's be honest, the state should be yep. providing. Agreed completely. It just, it, it just makes me so mad. It makes me so, so mad. Well, I've nothing to add. You two have uh, really <laughs> knocked, knocked that one out of the park. Um, it, it is, again, it's, like I was saying before, I feel like it's sympathetic for, with like uh, decision makers who are just entirely divorced from the communities that they're sort of trying to, supposed to be protecting and serving. Um, and that's why sort of a short-term fix, no matter how ridiculous can look like a good idea to them i think in in what um jello was saying there as well around there being a lack of representation in the room when these decisions were made that's a good segue into jay-z he's now in the room he's at the table in the nfl dan talk to us about jay in the nfl i mean i'm gonna start with a line for you I said no to the Super Bowl. You did. You need me. I don't need you. Every night we're in the end zone. 
Tell the, tell the NFL we in stadiums too. Do you know what song that's from? I do. Ape shit, right? Exactly. That's Jay-Z sticking it to the man, telling the NFL we stand behind Colin Kaepernick. That's shortly after he told uh, Travis Scott <laughs> not to play the Super Bowl last year. It's shortly after he told Jermaine Dupree not to work <laughs> with the NFL because... It, you know, they, because of the situation with Colin Kaepernick being blackballed and their approach to people protesting um, police brutality and inequality. Uh, sorry, and injustice. Let's fast forward. And Jay-Z's cut a deal. And the NFL have cut a check. And he was glad-handing and slapping bats with uh, Roger Goodell, the NFL commissioner, often regarded as the worst commissioner in NFL <laughs> history. And he's now saying... We're past kneeling, and we've, we need it's time for action. So he is the voice of the black community, after all. I mean, <laughs> apparently so. <laughs> apparently so. And it's it's interesting. It's, it, it was a bit of a shock to me to see just how quickly the, the divide happened, and people sort of turned, <laughs> and people that know better, people that should know better, were uh, were just opening their mouth and saying stupid things because they need the fact is a lot of them they need jay-z or they need this link to jay-z to survive and they were saying some some pretty stupid stuff i've just got a quote here which uh sort of reflects the situation for me really well um just bear with me it's a quote it's by Upton Sinclair, and he said, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. Mm. And in this case, like these that. people need Jay-Z, and they need their link. They like going to the Rock Nation brunch. They like wearing their paper plane hats. And you, voice after voice after voice who that had been supporting Kaepernick were now saying, well, you know, it's unfortunate, but Jay-Z, he's never let us down before. Let's Let's... Let's ignore the fact that this stinks. Let's ignore the fact that it's dirty. It's and he's nasty. basically being paid off to be a shield. And let's just see where this goes. It's 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 quite quite something. I mean, let's be let's try and give a full picture. Before I give that fuller picture, I want to remind you guys of something that I a question that I asked in the last podcast, which was what fair criticism of Beyonce would her fans accept and dom your answer was none they just will not accept it and so for me i'm hoping that this particular story might be helpful uh in making people realize the danger of elevating people to royalty status you see what i'm saying is that actually mm -hmm. when you kind of make people royalty royalty is untouchable and we'll see how untouchable they are with what's happening with prince andrew Allegedly. Um, but to give a fuller picture, I know that Jay-Z has been philanthropic. I know that he has given lots of money that hasn't made it into the news. And, you know, kudos to him for that. Or, or it's made it into the news, but he's not made a big deal of publicizing it. Let's, let's put it that way. And so give him big credit for that. But this is a different thing. You can't say that that we're past kneeling when the person that highlighted the issue is still being denied a job 
Because what you're actually saying is we're past kneeling and we want to move past this, but the person that brought this issue up will be punished. Because that's what it is, it's a punishment. I watch, I used to watch quite a lot of NFL. You know, the kids would always joke that having a lesson with me on a Monday morning was just a waste of time because I'd stay up to watch the late game. Um, <laughs> but Blowing an endorsement for yourself there, mate. Professionalism. Yeah, check my results. Um, <laughs> um, but... I remember, was it last season or the season before, there was a joke in one of my group chats where we said that what Colin Kaepernick should do when he goes to court is just say the names of some of the guys that are playing in the NFL. There's there's a guy called Nathan Peterman who threw five interceptions in one half and Colin Kaepernick didn't have a job. There were teams that were down to like their third string quarterback who looked like he'd never seen the game of football before and Colin Kaepernick couldn't get a job. And let's also be honest, we're not past kneeling. We're not past kneeling because everybody now adopts almost an eye roll when you talk about it. Saying we're past kneeling would suggest that kind of this issue is no longer an issue. And to say that kind of having Jay-Z there to kind of put on a Super Bowl show shows that we've defeated or you know we've overcome this issue of police brutality is ludicrous it's really ludicrous so whilst I give him credit for giving money to help people and not making a big deal about it I also have to castigate him for saying that we are past kneeling because we're not Every second that Colin Kaepernick is denied a job, and that's what's happening, he is being denied a job. It's not based on his skill level. He is clearly one of the 64 best people on this planet equipped to play quarterback in the NFL. And whilst he doesn't have a job, we are not past kneeling. And, and, and I think it's so disingenuous to say, well, you know, it was never about getting Colin Kaepernick a job. It was never about that. It's like, no, but... That's, that suggests, to make that argument, suggests that one issue can't be layered with another issue. He is a symbol of all that was wrong. And whilst he doesn't have a job, the money that Jay-Z accepts for this deal is whitewashing uh, the issue that Colin Kaepernick brought up. Well, this, the funny thing for me is like I've, I've followed this for quite a while now. And... Um, They've they've tried. So this is now the second time the NFL have tried to make pay someone, some black people, to make this go away. The first time was with the Players Coalition, <laughs> which when Cap was still technically a player in the NFL, uh, and that involved sort of Cap and and Eric Reed was on that coalition, and instead they sort of cut him out, and I think it was Malcolm, Malcolm Jenkins. Jenkins and uh, another NFL player. Uh, maybe Anquan Boldin. Anquan Boldin. I just remember, I just remember um, Malcolm Jenkins was like the yeah, figurehead. Yeah, so Malcolm Jenkins. He fronted it, and they basically had him cut a deal, which I think was like ninety. Said was like ninety million over a number of years, and then the players for those stop leaning. It's going to go towards social justice causes, and everyone's like, "Well, it's great. They've got all this money." And when people actually did some investigating, what happened? And what they realised was this was not new money. This was previous money that was being given to the. I think it's the breast cancer research uh, that charities they used they used to give money to breast cancer. They'd taken that cancer money and that just been reallocated towards social justice. And they were all they were doing was it worked out at something like five hundred thousand dollars per owner, and that was having to be matched by the players. 
and that was only over a fixed amount for like seven years or something. So when you actually looked at the deal, you like it, it, they've just given for a headline figure here because they've paid them off and they wanted it to go away. As, as a result of that, most of the players stopped kneeling and it sort of lost a bit of steam. And it's sort of to Cap's credit that he's, he gave away a million pounds of his own money and he sort of kept the momentum up on, on his end outside of it with his Nike deal and stuff. That this is still this is still a thing. Um, so I, I'm, I'm going to have to see a lot of evidence before I'd, I'd give anybody any credit for this, I'm afraid. Yeah, it's one of those things that we're going to have to watch how it plays out. But I think you kind of touched on this when you started on, on the subject, Dan, around how people have very much been jumping, some to Jay-Z's defence and others within the same breath. It's been quite scathing about Kaepernick. Um, and another podcast that I listen to, Three Shots of Tequila, I'll never say anything bad about it because I think those guys are pioneers and they've got a great show. Um, but they had a conversation on this last week um and they were pretty pretty shitty about Kaepernick they were saying that he shouldn't have settled he shouldn't have settled because if he was wanting to make a real sacrifice and make a real change why does it matter that he's got a job but exactly like you were saying there Angelo whilst he's not in a job he's being blackballed and whatever happens with this Jay-Z deal and people are talking about Jay-Z should give him a job that's that's ridiculous it's absolutely ridiculous whilst that is the case this is always going to leave a really really bitter taste in the mouth for me because I think from Jay's perspective this comes down to two things I mean he's a businessman I mean he said that in his lyrics a million times over um it's an economic decision and then on top of that him saying that we're past kneeling I mean come on man that one that one doesn't sit well at all when there's so much that's still going on there are kids still out there dying people starving i mean come on come on jay you're better than that and i also like with the thing with i've seen that there was a lot of people who just they, they can't be bothered to read up on it um which is fair enough but then you probably shouldn't be commenting on it mm-hmm. but kaepernick and eric reed had a labor dispute with the nfl around, centering around lost earnings for them not being assigned in the NFL, that's what that was. It was it was a, it was a labor dispute, so that could have only ended in them winning the dispute and being paid an amount of money, losing the dispute and not being paid an amount of money, and the NFL settling. And the NFL settled in most cases in these in these types of things. It just gets the the person who's settled is going to ask you to is going to pay you out and not say anything. Of course, you'd like him to not have an NDA. But if you, if your whole thing is I've I've lost earnings, that's to me it it doesn't invalidate Not your right all. to to say anything because you Not know that's all. that's that's all that was it was, and I mean he's lucky as well. Well, I don't mean he's lucky because he he got exactly what he deserved, Cap. But in most of these cases in the U.S. in particular, where you have these kind of judgments, what would typically happen is the big. The, the conglomerates will drag this out until you can't afford the lawyer's fees anymore and mm. you end up with nothing. In this case, we were lucky that we had a situation where there was enough publicity behind it. Cap had enough of his own earnings to actually keep this going. Because otherwise, if it was a much uh, lower profile case, then you'd be walking away with next to nothing. I think there's two things that I want to add on this. Um, one is about the, Dan, you just mentioned the NDA. And I've seen loads of stories where 
Uh, it has sources have said, and it has leaked that he again, quote unquote, only got ten million dollars um, from the NFL for this case. And people kind of almost saying that he, the fact that he got so little means that he didn't have a good case. And and I think there's two things to say about that. One, extremely dangerous to believe sources, especially sources that are coming from the NFL, whose yeah. job it is to kind of win this PR battle. Colin Kaepernick will never be able to say how much he did or did not get. And the idea that he only got, if he, he only got 10 million, that shows that somehow he was wrong, is, a, is the only way you can accept that is to completely ignore the facts of the case. And mm. the fact that the NFL have been far guiltier of other things, you know, concussion, and have paid out far less than they should have. You know, never forget that the first amount that they kind of said that they would pay out for concussion, which was agreed by the players who took the suit, was actually rejected by the judge because it was too little. So they, they're they not in the business of... They, they will pay as little as they can. They are arch-capitalist about making as much money as possible. So that's one thing. And here's where I feel the... And I want to just go back to Jay-Z, and I feel that the real issue with Jay-Z and his positioning now as the NFL shield against racism is what it does is it sets up a false binary. You can either be for Jay-Z or for Kaepernick. And mm. it just completely destroys nuance. And the, the people like Trump, when you've got a two-party system, so you've got Trump or Clinton or Jay-Z or Kaepernick, essentially you'll normally end up with a 50-50 because people want fair and balanced. So it's on the one hand I can see what Kaepernick is saying and then on the other hand what I, I can see what... Jay-Z is saying when actually it's far more nuanced than that and I think Jay-Z and the NFL know that they are well aware that by having Jay-Z now be the face of black people in the NFL in in many real ways he's Donald Trump's Ben Carson you know and and if that mm. sounds harsh I don't care but whilst he is being in that position he creates this binary and with the way that kind of things like Twitter work there'll be half the people shouting for Jay-Z half people shouting for Kaepernick and the NFL gets to sail away scot-free because we as a society now just we need binaries we need yeah. either ors and and the sad thing is and Dan you you say this all the time about Twitter that Twitter is not the forum in which to be having any kind of nuanced discussion but, but the bigger issue is that I just don't think that many people are capable of having a nuanced discussion. I just don't think many people are capable of having a nuanced discussion. And by putting just a single figure like Jay-Z, that helps them. Because what would have been ruinous for them is if they'd have got like a whole conglomerate of black um, artists. That would have been terrible because it's like, well, hold on a second. There's five of them and now one of him. So now I've got to juggle six things. No, it's one-on-one. -on -one. Are you with Jay-Z who, remember, is, she's, he's married to Beyonce and they're, they're our king and queen. And if you kind of go against them, they'll ruin your career. Oh, or are you against Colin leave. Kaepernick who had the temerity <laughs> to complain about police killing black people, unarmed black people? I mean... That's that is all correct. Dan's not happy that you brought Beyonce into every, it again. Every day, rattling the beehive. <laughs> every day. I think the point that I'm making is one is a very simple one. I don't have a specific issue with Beyonce. I have a real, <laughs> real issue with this idea that some people are off limits because nobody yeah. should mm. be off limits. Simple as. 
What okay. is it that you said, Angelo? When someone tells you who they are, believe what they said the first time or something. Yeah, well, that's a very, very famous effect. quote. Um, but yeah, when somebody tells you who... Is it, is it Maya Angelou? When somebody tells you who they yeah, are, believe them the Maya, first time. Maya Angelou. Um, and Jay-Z said, I'm, I'm a businessman. He, he, he's always been about making money. He's always been yeah. about making money. And I don't begrudge him that. He lives in a capitalist society, and he lives in a capitalist society which he, as a black man, is set up to fail in, and he's succeeding. Got no issue yeah. with that, but let's just keep it 100. Let's just keep it real. This is it's a fascinating thing. This is one of the articles that I did read about this. Uh, this the, the point that it made, I think it was Dave Dennis, it was actually in Playboy, which does some interesting stuff. But um, he's, his point was that when you actually look at it, or maybe it's Bamani Jones. I think it was Bamani Jones where he said he's yeah. guilty of nothing but being a capitalist. Yeah, and his point is that what people don't realise, and it's it, and all these people sort of who who worship uh, Jay Z because of what he's been able to come as a black man in, in America. Jay Z has got more in common with the with the owners than he does with any player in that league. He's got more in common with any one of those people sat behind the keyboards cheering him on. And those dusty old rappers hoping for a feature, cheering him on because they all want they all want that part of that reflected glow. They all want to be one day make it into a booth with with Jay Z and Diddy. But in reality, he's mm. gone clear. <laughs> he just he looks like us, but it's you know his his priorities are understandably because of where he is in life, just elsewhere. And that's that is I feel like that that is a bit lost when we do discuss Jay-Z and and sort of where he is. And so. as well, there could be a lot of good that comes from it. It does leave a bit of a funny oh taste God. right now, but there could be. Stop being so naive. It, there could be. There could be. Like Mate. like like last time when they paid off the Players' Coalition. Sure. I, I tell you what, I will look forward to this, <laughs> this year's Super Bowl and we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens, shall we? Here's, here's my prediction. Jay-Z and Beyonce uh, are part of the Super Bowl show it's this kind of celebration of black positivity. They release a song in the similar kind of vein as Brown Skin Girl, and everybody sings Kumbaya, and racism is solved. And meanwhile, there'll be You're some there'll right. be some kid in some part of America who is black, who is a straight A's honor student, who gets murdered for doing nothing other than kind of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And the wrong place will be around the wrong kind of police officer that just feels the need to kill someone for no reason. That's my prediction. Yeah, I mean, nothing's going to happen. And I think it'll be the partnership. They'll find some headline projects to sort of say it's a success and they'll quietly go separate ways in about 18 months' time. Everyone, yeah. gone, move on. Yeah, they probably will do. Dan, you, one, um, one thing I do want to just spend hopefully 30 seconds on is you said you know because he looks like us and one thing that i'm really kind of pleased with with this is that there is this recognition that there is no homogenous mass we don't just blindly support people because they look like us oh you know no, you, absolutely we've had not. it in england i remember there was a question time that laura pidcock and who is a uh, white female mp i believe for durham and Durham North, I think, and second name, and and Kwasi Kwarteng, who is a um, black British African man, and she had to correct him over some of the stuff that he was saying, which was, you know, he he's a Tory and he was spouting some absolute nonsense, and you know, I have far more in common with someone like Laura Pidcock than I do with Kwasi Kwarteng, and if 
people if all people get out of this Jay-Z thing is that wow this idea that there's just this one homogenous black voice is absolute nonsense that's a great thing mm. we do not want a seat at the table we need to break the table indeed rocket dong exactly speaking of tables there's no segue here. You know, you're not, you're not always going to hit a home run. You're not always going to hit a home take a run. Single way I was so intrigued where you were going with that one. you can, man. I'm absolutely okay with that. He's not been breaking tables, but um, Dave Chappelle has been shaking tables. Ooh. Um, I don't know. Dom actually saw this live. Um, I did. I, th- I feel like I saw bits of this in, I saw him two years ago again with you at the Royal, Royal Albert Hall, which is a beautiful venue. And his latest stand-up, uh, Sticks and Stones, plus epilogue, if you stay till the credits, on Netflix has been, well, it's been it's been divisive, to say the least. And it's, it's, it's interesting, actually. I'm quite glad that you sort of finished talking about nuance and how everything's binary and how it picks, forces people to choose sides because I've just been sort of raking through Twitter the last couple of days and just to see what people thought about it. Not really engaging with it because I value my free time too much. My, uh, That's not what your Twitter thinks. Exa- yeah, wow. Well. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah. But, uh, uh, but yeah, so uh, but, well, it's been interesting to see, like, it's the... Uh, the right, it's it sticks and stones. So his main thing is he's taking on what he calls cancel culture, but he's not. He's not, and and this in itself has been obviously it's been jumped on by the alt right. It's been jumped on by the right. It's been jumped on by the centre right. By anyone really who wants any excuse to berate things on uh, the left or liberals or aspects of liberal culture. So it's interesting to see people on that side have jumped in, and then it's 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 caused quite a quite a schism, I'd say, quite a schism in his fan base between people who sort of people like him, people who loved his earlier work, people who feel like they're sort of uh, almost sort of an unfair target of punching down now. Um, I, I know you've got some particularly strong views on this uh angela i think it so let me be clear he is still one of the funniest comedians to ever do it there there are bits in the new show that are just hilarious there's no like the juicy smollet uh that that whole bit was (laughs) i just thought it was absolutely hilarious i really did think it was very 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 good he clearly knows how to kind of be funny but I I was disappointed and because parts of it are lazy. And and there is no other way about it. This is now, I think, the third show in a row where his tar- he has made a big part of his show what he calls the alphabet people, the LGBTQ community. And the problem is, is that where Dave has always been razor sharp is that he'll have an observation that is grounded in kind of the reality that he lives around the people that he's making observations about you know and you can go back to his first stand-up where he talks about how um you can ask american people about anything except their politics and he and he has this joke where he kind of asks a friend um 
who he's voting for and he kind of says the guy gets mad about he says don't ask me about anything personal and then he kind of goes on about talking about how he's having sex with his wife a really accurate thing that people back then did not like to talk about their politics but it, I just thought it, parts of it was just lazy. I just thought it was so lazy. And 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 then I know you say you try not to spend too much time on Twitter, but you made a, a a good observation about kind of starting with the Anthony Bourdain suicide was 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 very very risky. And what I found interesting was that the audience laughed before he'd made the punchline. So he talked about Anthony Bourdain killed himself, and the audience was already laughing. That tells you that that audience was primed to have. Uh, a good time um so just just on that as well bit of an inside scoop here with this old special based on the routine that we saw and it was pretty much i'd say 90 percent the same they cut a hell of a lot out because there was a lot in there which i genuinely don't think would have been able to be aired it was that it was that far across the line so i think by this point there'd already been a couple of suicide jokes and then you go in so you already he set the tone early when you watch him live and then when you watch the special it's straight in at the deep end because that's what he's like. Yeah, I, I, so there was so the the bits that well, I just got I got annoyed at the what he called the alphabet people because it just wasn't accurate. Like, and it's one of those things that I like to switch the lens where it's like, okay, if this was a really smart comedian talking about people of color and he just d wasn't getting it, I'd criticize them in the same way. But the bit I was just like, I didn't like it was the Louis C.K. thing, the Louis C.K joke was was just it completely so i put this in the in the group chat but he sets up a construct that completely negates power dynamics and instead he chooses to situate it in law so he's not done anything that's going to get him arrested as if that is the point how many how f many people in the kind of me too era as he kind of calls it have gone to the police it's no it's about they created a work environment that was very, very difficult to work in. These are gatekeepers. Dave Chappelle is a gatekeeper. I'm not saying he's done anything wrong, but Louis C.K. was a gatekeeper. And the whole bit that celebrity abuse coming from a celebrity is somehow better. I can understand the construct of a joke that he's setting up that we live in a celebrity-obsessed culture and say there would be some people that would, you know, oh, it's a story, I can make money. But it, it also negates that it's happening to children and that lives are being ruined i just thought where he kind of put the effort in very very funny as i say i think the juicy smollet uh section is is an all-time Chappelle bit but on other areas um it just he came across as and i've i'm coming across this with a, a lot of people that i have grown up with that they seem to be very angry at the speed the world is changing and don't like that people are being held accountable for their actions and they want that they want the system to stay the same roughly the same and they don't like that there is a generation that are saying, no, I'm not willing to accept what you accepted. I, I don't think that's fair on to hold him against that. I don't think he's particularly angry angry at it. I, I feel like the, his last couple of specials have become stuck on the topic because that's what people are talking about rather than him having any real anger at it. So he's like, okay, I'm going to train my lens on it. And I think it's almost like his reaction is to keep... It's to, it's to stay in that. It's, I don't think he's, he's got any real sort of animosity about it, but he's just going to keep... He, he's, he's a type of person where, you know, he's, it's well documented. He walked away from his $50 million because that's what... The, he If he decides this is this is where he wants to fight, that's what he's going to do. And I feel like he's just going to... He fe probably feels like he can he can joke his way out of it, I feel. And, and that's... it. It To me, 
it was patchy. It was patchy, and I, I think that there is a danger with this that, like you say, people haven't grown up with uh, Dave Chappelle. He's always been sort of so razor sharp and so so in tune with the way sort of a lot of people think. So I think when you get to a topic where he's not quite on the money, it's easy to, it it, it becomes quite sort of difficult to, to identify him with that with the Dave Chappelle that we knew before, but I don't actually think he's changed that much as a I comic. I think he's changed at all. I think the world's changed quite a bit, and I think just how he perceives the world has changed quite a bit. But I don't think his jokes necessarily have changed that much. The way the way that I look at it is, when he signed his deal with Netflix, what was it, five or six specials for quite a lot of money, and this was only a couple of years ago. And usually, when comedians go through. Um, a run of shows and they're doing a tour and they've got a few specials they'll do one particular they'll, they'll do one particular um, run for a year or so and it'll be the same material the whole way through a lot of these five specials he's done over the last couple of years it's a lot of the same content or similar content because a lot of it overlaps like Dan said when we went to see him at the Royal Albert Hall last year some of that content was featured in this special and then when I saw him a few months ago wasn't in that and and it's just there's a lot of overlap there because these are hot topics and because the time of uh, the time at which they've come but the main thing that i take from it is and he says this and a lot of those comedians i think ricky gervais is another one that always gets this as a criticism put to get put to him is that some jokes are out of bounds it's the job of a comedian as far as i'm concerned to push those boundaries to make jokes about things that are sacred because if they're not saying it, who else is going to? And and it's very much a case of we can laugh at things and still think that they're wrong, which is why there were so many points in the stand-up that I watched that I saw on Netflix, that I saw live where I was like, I can't believe I'm laughing at this. And that's when someone's a master of their craft, when they can say something which is so offensive, but I'm still sat there laughing. But that's the issue. And you, you're wincing. But that's the issue. Why is that an issue? No, no, no. This, I, I'm agreeing with what you're saying. I, I, and I specifically, I don't think that it's the job of a comedian to push boundaries. I think it's the job of a com of a comedian to be funny. And and for me, quite simply, there were just bits of it that weren't funny. Now, to be really clear, I have heard some of the best jokes I've ever heard are about some of the most dangerous topics to talk about. Um, I've heard jokes about diseases, I've heard jokes about abuse that are just, the way they are set up, the way they are told are funny. And so I'm really not one of those people that say that there are certain sacred cows that you do not joke about. I don't believe that at all. What I am saying is that there were parts of this that weren't funny and they weren't funny because I just think that he there is an anger but then I also go back to the point that, you know, if you remember the um, the one that he did in San Francisco back in 2004, he said it was, he, he said back then, this is the worst time in history to be a black celebrity. There's a witch hunt for us. And that was with the Kobe Bryant um, allegations. Um, so he's been, he's been mining this idea for 15 years. Well, not 50, because obviously he disappeared for a long time, but... It was a concern then, it's a concern now. The The issue for me is it's, it's some of it wasn't funny. There are jokes that can be made about anybody. There are jokes that can be made about black people which can sound offensive but if delivered right can still be funny. 
There are jokes about the the LGBT community, which, if they are told right, can be funny. But comedy, for me, I've always been told comedy works best when it's punching up. And Dave Chappelle is not when he talks about the LGBT community is not punching up one. And also, I don't think he's got the uh, the the sharpness of insight that he has with other topics. But the, the point that you raised there about Kobe, I think that's a great one because <laughs> when you look at a lot of the material in this particular special, when he's talking about the Michael Jackson case, the R. Kelly case, which are obviously horrific, Kobe Bryant as well, who knows what happened in that hotel room, but it's two very, very similar subjects and he approached them both with a very similar, from a very similar angle. And in 2004, we laughed hysterically, 2019, it's much more divisive. I think I don't think as as what as exactly what Dan said. I don't think that Dave Chappelle has changed his approach. I don't think Dave Chappelle has changed at all. Really, but that's, isn't he that the problem? After those, but why is that a problem? Because, it, it, because it's, it's not, not the, the job of. I read an article that said one of the jobs of a comedian is to read the room um, and adapt to it. And I've seen I've seen I've been at a Dave Chappelle show when he's done that. I was at the show not last year, but maybe the year before the year before that when he came to England the first time. Um, and there, there was a joke he told about the NFL that didn't land. There wasn't enough people in the audience. So he just went, I'm just going to scrap that. And, and he went on to something else. Do you see what I that's, mean? Is that's, that he, that's fair enough. But he, he, made, he made this point when it went on sort of to the epilogue. And it is his job to read the room. But uh, And he read the room. You, we you, all laughed. You can't. We, we didn't. That's why we're talking about it. Well, but this is a problem. This is a problem. But you, can't, you can't make a comedy show for 300 people in attendance. Uh, I I know what you're saying. Like I agree with it. Like it was patchy for me. Like some of the jokes, the one where they don't know, spoiler, but the one about him being like a, a Chinese, like comparing oh. being a trans person to being a Chinese person, <sighs> and I thought this is like the type of thing like kids used to do when they're like six. And in on the, like on the face of that, if I was in the room, I'd probably have laughed at the awkwardness of it because it 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 was absolutely preposterous. But in the cold light, when you sort of sat there, I was just like. I can't actually believe I'm watching one of the greatest comedians of all time make this joke. It was Bernard is... Manning-esque. Mm. Mm. But and and, and this and that's that was the frustrating thing for me about it. Like some some of the the, the timing, like the, like you say, the skill in him is is still there as a comic. It's still it's like some of the the joke, like the jokes there were outstanding. In the epilogue, there's a he tells a long story about. Um, making jokes in front of this this trans person in in the uh <laughs> do, am i gonna am i gonna spoil it if, I, if I no more spoilers okay yeah <laughs> and the the way that joke finishes and he it, it ends up it just goes from the sublime to the ridiculous like that and you're like oh my goodness he's actually still the time this is it the, the sharpness is still there yeah. evident even in this show it's just like i, I guess yeah uh, it, it backs up what you're saying like in some areas it it doesn't it doesn't quite land and you possibly need to to rethink that possibly possibly i was sold um mm. guys i've got a because uh, i'm just aware of the time I've, I've got a songs that you would x to our long running mm. and soon to be extremely famous series and i'm obviously springing this one on you it's uh songs that you would listen to down at the chicken shop i knew you're gonna say that <laughs> i knew you're gonna say that do you want to start us then? Yeah. Oh, so me personally, because I'm all about, I would listen to um, Luciano Pavarotti's version of Ness and Dormouth. 
just just be there eat eat obviously i'm a vegan but at the chicken shop uh having my food listening to opera music just unabashed i think it would be absolutely awesome um i would listen to um the streets um has it come to this? Like it just—it's it, very sort of urban. Just lads, just geezers. Has it come to this? Oh, hey, hey, original pirate material. Just geezers. Just like that's how I used. To, my first sort of vision of London was just from a guy from Birmingham. Classics. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Here he is. That. Um, I think mine, just because it makes certain people's heads explode, would be. I'd have to go for some kind of drill. So. Unknown T, Homerton B, just something that talks about some horrific themes because people would walk past and be like, look, they love it, don't they? So, yeah, I think that's what I think. That, I think that your song should be played directly before or after my song. So just completely mess with the head and we just bop to both tunes the same way. <laughs> Maybe, like, if one of you two could just mix those together, we'll have that, we'll have that for the outro. Let's do that. <laughs> so... See how that goes. Homerton B does Ness and Dharma. <laughs> right, guys. Well, glad that you've listened. Uh, like, s- s- comment. Give us comments on wherever you see us. We're on all of that. Instagram. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. Um, let us know what you want us to talk about, and we will see you coming from a podcast studio near you soon. And someone let us know if you've seen Nate or Kofi about. Kofi is still part of this collective, <laughs> uh, so we think. Just we just not heard of him or seen this guy for about four months. No, fair, so, fair play to Kofi. He's on his way to Ghana. He's going over there to do some work, see some family. Um, and Nate's just does Nate just come yam. back from Dublin? Yeah, Nate will be in a really bad place right now. (laughs) (laughs) He was walling up Temple Bar yesterday. Absolutely. Uh, Guts, guts repeating. (laughs) Right, guys, uh, should we give it a clap for the outro? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, Good job. Until next time. Cheers, mate.